This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast Best Bits from Tuesday, January the 17th. Uh, coming up, we'll be hearing from His Excellency Abdullah Al Shamsi, who is the Assistant Undersecretary Industry Growth at the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology. His Excellency uh, obviously speaking at the World Future Energy Summit, uh, which is underway down in Abu Dhabi, part of Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week and the Green Agenda being discussed in Abu Dhabi. We got insight from His Excellency. We're also joined by Paul Jackson. Paul's the Global Head of Asset Allocation Research at Invesco. Uh, each At the beginning of each year, they give an outlook report uh, with a variety of predictions uh, from everything from potential returns of world leaders uh, and politicians to Rugby World Cup winners and, of course, uh, a look at some of the predictions from central banks from around the world about the possibilities of recession. Richard Wayne was in early doors as well. Uh, Richard is the Group Managing Director of Better Homes. Uh, Yet another positive report coming from Better Homes. Residential property prices in Dubai expected to rise at a slower pace in 2023, but rise nonetheless. So we've got more details on that. And one of the big talkers whilst we were on air this morning was the latest numbers coming out of China. China's uh, reporting a 3% GDP growth for last year, well below pre-COVID predictions, but a little bit better given some of the restrictions that have been seen within the country. So we try to dive into those numbers a little bit more with Katija and others. All of that to come right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast. Right, looking at all the big business stories for you this morning. Uh, One breaking since we've been on air. Need some explanation. Why is 3% not good for China? Let's hear from Katija Hack. She's the chief economist of Emirates MBD. China's economy grew faster than expected in the fourth quarter of 2022. It was unchanged from Q3, but was up 2.9% year on year. The median forecast had been for just 1.6% growth in the fourth quarter, given the extensive lockdowns uh, related to COVID-0 before that policy was eased. We also then had a spike in infections, which would have disrupted manufacturing um, in the last few weeks of the year. Nevertheless, we did see industrial production growth come in again, better than forecast at 1.3% year on year in December. Um, we, we had retail sales numbers falling by around 2% on an annual basis, but again, that was much better than the analysts had been expecting. The government for this year is targeting 5% growth, and policy measures will focus on boosting consumption and investment in China to achieve that goal. So this is China's GDP growth, 3% um, announced earlier. Is that good or bad? Well, B- Bad. Beijing wanted five and a half. Okay. Um, as Katie just said there, uh, the economic consensus was that it would be any lower. I mean, I don't think anyone could look at what China's gone through um, over uh, COVID in, in general, but it's also staying closed longer than anyone else and expect to see massive growth under that. Um, the question is China's population obviously is huge and it needs arguably, like India, a higher rate of, of growth um, in order to keep everybody moving forward. But the population falling... 
The, uh, alongside these GDP figures, we got numbers from the National Bureau of Statistics about an hour and a half ago saying that the era of negative population growth is here for the first time since 1961. So the country had 1.41175 billion people at the end of last year compared with 1.41260 a year earlier. It's not a massive decline, but it's the direction of travel. The Guardian says it marks the beginning of what expects it to be a long period of population decline for China. And, of course, we know that the one-child policy of many decades ago has, has sowed the seeds of this. Yeah, I mean, population's a, a sticky one, isn't it? Because we talk about increasing population and the stresses that it puts on, well, the globe food supplies, um, economic growth, etc. But you also need, I'm trying to think of the ratio, is it about three to one, four to one, people who are working to support those who are not, who are either unemployed or who are retired. There has to be a a specific ratio. This is something that Japan has struggled with um, for a really long time in order to basically keep keep the model afloat. Yeah, an ageing population is not good for an economy because the old people are essentially dependents rather than productive members of society. And that's a, that's a gross generalisation, of course, but uh, that is it. You know, young children and old people are not the productive members of any society. That's just basic demographics. First decline since 1961 over in China in terms of the population growth as well. So a uh, developing story this morning. We'll keep an eye on that one. What else are we keeping an eye on? We're keeping an eye on what's be, what you've been up to over the last couple of days. Down the road in Abu Dhabi for... Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week. It's a biggie and it has many tentacles. So on Thursday, for example, we're going to be down in Abu Dhabi broadcasting live at the Abu Dhabi Sustainable Finance Forum, looking at how you finance all these solar power plants, waste to energy plants, wind farms and so on. Because if they don't get financed, they do not get built. I was down yesterday at the what's called the World Future Energy Summit. Again, one of these many tentacles of Sustainability Week. And in many ways, it's the biggie. You had 15 heads of state on stage. Uh, Sultan al-Jabba holding court. We'll hear from him in a few moments' time. But uh, firstly, let's hear from one of the organisers. What does it take to put an event like this together? Vasily Gigalo is Managing Director of RX Middle East, and they are the effectively the, the organisers here. And we asked him, um, how important is it to have businesses here? Because for the World Future Energy Summit, they say we are the biggest business event for sustainability. It's about commerce as well as going green. We've got it all here. That's the interesting thing, that we do have a lot of policymakers and uh, government officials talking about big programs and future plans, and it happens at ADSW Summit. But here uh, at exhibition at World Future Energy Summit, we have numerous international pavilions. This is businesses. These people who offer the actual solutions. So they have technology, they have innovation to support all the policies, all the discussions happening in the, in the, in the conferences. And we also asked him about the carbon footprint of an event like this. Whenever you have a sustainability event, whether it's Brandy going to COP27, this, whatever it may be, you always get the question, well, what's the carbon footprint? People are flying in, you're building all these stands and so on. And this is what he had to say. Here you're going to meet hundreds of people within three days. You don't need, you don't need to make these hundred trips uh, during the year because you can meet people here. Uh, if you look at features, the one we built as organizers, uh, like um, a buyer's lounge, for example, it's all made out of recyclable materials, so it's all will be 
will be recycled. We're also doing a lot of... Um, an event is powered by clean energy, by EWEC. So they, they, they offset in the carbon footprint for the event. They are partner with us on that. We work closely with, with the venue as well. Um, you know, they obviously contributing quite a lot to make it sustainable. And that's what's going on down at Wafes. Uh, down the road in Abu Dhabi. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we are talking property this morning, a raft of property reports and numbers out. One real estate who has replaced, uh, one real estate company rather, that's released its annual report is Better Homes. Richard Wayne is the Group Managing Director of Better Homes. Morning, Richard. Good morning, Brandy. Uh, your report's standing out to us because in amid the reports of ultra-luxury, 10 million, half a trillion, uh, you're warning that price gains may be set to slow. Talk to me about that. Um, well, for, I wouldn't use the word warning. You know, I think um, it's looking at it the wrong way. We, we've seen prices and transactions in Dubai doing phenomenally well over the last couple of years, which has been great. Transactions, again, were up 60% last year. And prices rose across Dubai, on average, roughly 11%. There were some outliers there. You know, in the luxury market, you'll see a lot lot bigger than that. But across Dubai, it's about 11%. The year before, it was about 20%. So we saw a slowing of the rates of rises last year. We just expect that uh, trend to continue this year. We, we expect that prices will rise roughly about 5 to 6% this year rather than 11% last year. So it's nothing to be scared about. It's nothing to be worried about. It really is just a factor of the market back in 2020, 2021, rising from a very low base, rising quite quickly from a low base. And obviously, as that market rises, the rate of rise will slow. Why do you think it will slow? What are the factors buying into that for you? It really comes down to two things, and both of them are affordability. One, as prices rise, naturally, uh, the number of people who are willing and able to purchase a property decreases. So there's a there's a demand reducing effect as prices go up. And the second big one, of course, has been the increase in interest rates. So interest rates is affecting people's demand uh, uh, purchasing ability. It's affecting their decision making. Crucially, it's not make, uh, really affecting their underlying demand to buy property. We've seen more demand. We've seen more people buying property. It's just what they're willing to pay and what they're buying. Where are you seeing the uh, the price rise split between apartments and between villas? Yeah, so um, there are some big outliers within the villa market and the luxury market. So you, if you look at places like uh, the Palm, Jamaica Golf Estates, these sort of places still seeing 20 to 30% price increases. Um, whereas we are seeing in other more um, established communities, Emirates, Livings, those sort of places, we're not seeing the prices shooting up quite as much. And there's you know, real, some st- stable pricing around those places, around 5 6 7%. Uh, between villas and um, apartments, villas really led the charge back in 2020, 2021. Um, and we've seen prices in villas a little bit flatter over the last year, whereas apartments really have, have sort of captured the imagination, captured the buyer market over the last 12 months. And we've seen some real growth in that that space. So apartments are probably where the majority of the action is at the moment. A lot of that, as I understand it from some of the other reports I've been looking at, a lot of that uh, interest in apartments has purely been because of supply. There's been less supply of villas. Where are we on the supply and demand curve for apartments? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So uh, apartments in particularly for off-plan. So we saw an increase in the market about 60% last year in transactions, but off-plan transactions were 80%. So a lot of that growth was in off-plan. And a lot of what we've seen in terms of new new launches have been in the apartment sector. So we saw, I think, I think, 
there was almost a doubling, I think a 70, 80% increase in the number of transactions in apartments last year, whereas actually we only saw an increase of 3% in the tra- number of transactions for villas. So yeah, absolutely. It is it is supply-led. It's a lot to do with what we're seeing in the off-plan market. Um, and uh, yeah, as I say, it's apartments have really led the way. So where are we on the supply-demand equation? Where is the balance right now? It's still pretty unbalanced, if, if, if we're honest with ourselves. We saw about 33,000, 34,000 new homes delivered last year, which just isn't, frankly, enough for today's market and the, the growth we're seeing in the population. And that's why we're still, I think, our, our numbers, it's about 21 or 22 buyers for every seller that we registered last year, which is clearly imbalanced. Um, this year, as we go into 2023, we again, we expect new deliveries of property to be about thirty to 35,000, which again, it's going to be short for what we need. That imbalance will ease up as we go into 24. 25 and 26 is where we really expect to see a lot of today's launches, and there's lots of launches happening into market, will actually come through to delivery. So I don't see any real easing of that supply issue for the next couple of years. Uh, one of the messages that we've had, and in fact, two of the messages are basically asking what that increase in value and the uh, the demand issue that you're talking about means for the rental market. Yeah, we saw a real rise in rents last year, 30% up. Um, and again, because we're not seeing a lot of new homes being delivered and it, you know, a new home needs to be delivered for a tenant to live in it, of course, um, we expect to see the, the, the pinch on uh, supply and rentals to increase. And I, I, sadly for tenants, I think we'll see those prices increase again this year. Oh, you've divided your report looking at, at who's been buying in 2022 into resident and non-resident. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the split there. Uh, we started looking at this last year. So we, there's obviously the resident buyer who's in Dubai, who calls Dubai home and they, they look to buy. And the number one buyer uh, in that segment was uh, Indian nationals followed by UK nationals. We then also look at overseas buyers. So we look at you know the, the direct foreign investment coming into Dubai in the real estate market and who's buying there. And in that segment, probably unsurprisingly this year number one was the russians number two again was the uh, the brits and then number three was the uh, the indians so we try and split it we like look to see who's here and who's in country buying and also who's uh, who's abroad buying who's buying more was it the residents or the non-residents uh, the residents, yeah, the residents, and we actually saw an increase in the number of residents, which again, I think, you know, that's that's great news for us. That's good news for the market. It's good news for stability for the market and long term longevity. Uh, we've got about forty seconds left with you. What could a more mobile Chinese buyer this year mean for prices and property? Well, again, you know, a little bit like the Russians last year, if there's an influx and a large influx of a new uh, buyer base, it can only mean one thing, more demand, potentially, you know, prices increasing again. The, the Chinese were very, very active a couple of years ago. Obviously, there's been difficulty both with money and, and people moving from China in the last few years. We do expect that to ease with the, the ending of the uh, zero COVID policy. I suspect we'll really start to see that impacting the market from Q2 onwards. Um, but yeah, we, we, we expect to see a lot of Chinese activity in the next 12 months. Richard Wayne is Group Managing Director of Better Homes in with their 2022 report, having a look at what prices did last year, what they might do this year, and suggesting that we could see a softening in the rate of growth of price rises to about 5% in real estate. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Continuing the theme of growing wealth, Invesco has released its investment outlook for the year and some punchy, improbable but possible scenarios. We're going to find out what they think is happening to inflation and interest rates and what it means for all of us with Paul Jackson. He's the Global Head of Asset Allocation Research at Invesco. Paul, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Brandy. 
Flicking through your report, the absolute standout for me, the basis of, of some of the investment advice that you're offering, is what you expect central banks to do next. You see uh, maybe a quicker end to the tightening cycle than many others. Talk to me about that. Yeah, especially, I, I think inflation is going to come down pretty quickly. It's already coming down rapidly. It peaked in June of last year in the States. And I think with inflation coming down rapidly and core inflation following headline down, central banks will feel that they don't have to do as much as they're currently threatening. So the Fed, for example, I think will have finished its work by the middle of the year and be reducing rates by the end of the year as the economy weakens. How does that fit with the Fed rhetoric that we're hearing at the moment, the the talk still of unpopular choices? Yeah, I, I think the Fed, to tell you the truth, is looking in the rearview mirror. So it's looking at the last inflation print rather than thinking about what's coming ahead. Uh, they made that same mistake last year, but in reverse. Uh, so they were too slow to start tightening. And when they did, they panicked and, and, and tightened a hell of a lot. And I suspect by the end of this year, they'll be panicking in the other direction. So where could you see interest rates ending up? What's your forecast? I think Fed rates by the end of this year are probably going to be not too different from where they are now. Uh, So you'll get an increase in the interim period through to May and June and then uh, start the decrease by the end of the year. So around four and a half percent. The other prediction of the outlook that you have that maybe differs from from many others um, is that you think Europe is at greater risk of recession than the US. Yeah, I I think actually most people would agree with that. I think it's the idea that, first of all, Europe is much more vulnerable to the effects of the war in Ukraine. And a big part of that, of course, is the rise in energy prices and a very localised increase in gas prices in Europe, which is squeezing real incomes and pushing up inflation more than in the US. But we are seeing a warmer winter. Um, than many expected. We have seen gas prices come down to to pre-invasion levels. What spin does that put on things if that energy crunch is eased? Uh, Well, I think it's very important. And it's something I I think energy prices will keep coming down this year, uh, led by European gas prices. That will mean that European inflation falls more rapidly than US inflation, helped by the fact that the euro is recovering against the dollar as well. So European inflation last year rose more rapidly than in the States and will come down more rapidly this year, which will, will will help the European economy. But I think there's still that greater risk of recession there. One of the things that you you were also saying in this report is that financial markets need to start thinking about recovery, if they're not already, uh, to take a less defensive position. What could that look like in practice? Yeah, I think, I mean, typically at the start of a recovery phase, it's assets such as equities, high yield, uh, bank loans that tend to outperform. So what I would say is that last year, we were very focused on all the negatives, particularly inflation going up and central banks tightening. This year, as markets look over that valley of recession and almost discount the fact that recession may happen and look ahead to the recovery towards the end of the year, then you will get those risk assets performing better. What does it mean for where you're telling your clients to put their money at the moment? Well, in in terms of where my model asset allocation is, uh, I've boosted the allocation to high yield credit, for example, and reduced the allocation to uh, government bonds. And also in terms of reducing the defensiveness, I Uh, eliminated the cash position in favour of gold, which I think of as being a diversifying asset, but it's a much more volatile asset than cash. What about real estate? 
Real estate is a is an asset that I actually like. I think you know the, there are obviously fundamental problems, but I think that's uh, basically reflected in the price. Yields are pretty high, and I think that the rentals on most real estate segments are better protected against inflation than our corporate profits. So I actually prefer real estate to equities. And just a couple of minutes, and I'm looking at some of your um, improbable possibles that you're predicting for this year. Um, one particularly pertinent this morning, uh, China's economic momentum being better than the US and Europe. We've had Chinese GDP numbers this morning that's disappointed 3% growth. Talk to me about what you could see for China. Yeah, well, first of all, that 3% is better than was expected. So it's, it's, it's obviously a slowdown versus what we were used to seeing, but it was better than what the consensus estimate was. Um, in terms of improvements in China, first of all, when you're starting from a very low, low ebb, then it's easier to, to, to get upside surprises. Uh, with the loosening of COVID restrictions, I think that will free the economy to some extent. But also when you look at the monetary momentum in China, what is happening to money supply growth, it's much better than in the States. It's actually improving in the States. It's ground to zero. Uh, you're predicting potentially, potentially a Boris Johnson comeback a few seconds. Could that ever happen? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, I think it is a possibility. I think it's, um, it's partly because the Conservatives are so far behind in the opinion polls. And I think the Conservative Party may panic later this year. And who may they turn to? You know, the membership who elect the leader, they love him. So I think it is a possibility. And in Ireland to win the Rugby World Cup? Yes, um, I think I've got Ireland versus France in the final. Um, but I just think, feel that the weight of home expectation will work against France. My kids are French, so they don't like that idea. <laughs> I knew you were speaking to a New Zealander. Uh, very pleased to have you with us this morning. Paul Jackson's Global Head of Asset Allocation Research at Invesco. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk sustainable energy now because Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week kicked off yesterday. I was down there for the World Future Energy Summit at the big exhibition centre in Abu Dhabi and the main speaker kicking it all off was Dr Sultan Al Jaba. He is the CEO of ADNOC. He's the Minister of Industry and Advanced Technology here in the UAE. He's the chairman of Mazda. I could go on the president designate of COP28. So he explained why this edition of the World Future Energy Summit is particularly important. This year's ADSW carries a special significance because it is the year that we host COP28 in a critical decade for climate progress. The United Arab Emirates approaches this role with humility, a deep sense of responsibility, and a great sense of urgency. He also praised the UAE's leadership. The UAE has always risen to challenges by getting ahead of the future. And the transformational progress we have managed to achieve in only 50 years has been anchored by the principle and true practice of genuine partnership. We have been blessed with a leadership that have invested the wealth of the nation in the health of the nation. Balanced economic growth with environmental responsibility and put climate action at the heart of our development strategy. Before anyone in this region saw future renewables, the UAE saw them as the future. This was his message on climate change. Despite the progress that the world is making, we need to be honest with ourselves. We are way 
off track. We need to go much further and much faster. We are playing catch up in our efforts to keep 1.5 alive. We need to reverse emissions while moving economies forward, enabling an inclusive and just transition that leaves no one behind. That's why we are determined to make COP28 a COP for all and a COP of action. COP28, of course, happening later this year here in the UAE. More long term, he was looking at the UAE's net zero target by the middle of the century. The road to net zero represents the biggest market transformation with the greatest economic promise since the first industrial revolution. A low carbon pathway to a high growth destination with inclusive growth for all. So that's Dr. Sultan Al-Jabba speaking at the opening ceremony. We were down there yesterday and speaking to a lot of people on the sidelines whose job it is to make this happen. One of them is His Excellency Abdullah Al-Shamzi. He's an Assistant Undersecretary for Industry Growth at the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology. And so basically Sultan Al-Jabba is his boss and it's his job to make it all happen. They've signed a number of deals, agreements, MOUs at this event. And we asked him, and most of them are about promoting what he calls the circular economy in the UAE. So we asked Abdullah to begin by defining what is the circular economy in your terms and what is the ministry doing to promote it? Circular economy from an industrial perspective is how to um, incentivize uh, recycling and reusing products uh, in in our economy. And it's also uh, creating uh, more value out of uh, material and out of waste by turning it into raw material into industry. So that's something uh, very important that we're working on at the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology and we're uh, designing uh, policies uh, geared towards creating these uh, economic incentives that will uh, allow companies to uh, take advantage of waste rather than just throwing it away. An example of that is uh, our MOUs. So we're going to announce uh, a new regulation around uh, the use of RPET, and we have a new uh, facility, 180 million dirhams, uh, a new facility by Viola and other companies uh, to establish a unit that uh, takes uh, plastic waste and turns it into uh, valuable uh, products. What about legacy industries, things like aluminium, aluminium, steel, very important still to the economy. They're traditionally very energy intensive. What could we do to make them a little bit more sustainable? So uh, decarbonizing industry is becoming very important. Um, the carbon footprint of uh, products in general, as a measure, is going to be a source of uh, competitive advantage in the future. Uh, countries and markets all around the world will, uh, uh, will measure the carbon footprint of uh, products and depending on whether the product is low carbon footprint or not will be a determinant for whether you enter a market or not or whether you you can sell to a certain customer or not. Uh, We are preparing for this new market uh, reform globally by incentivizing manufacturers to think about their carbon footprint from now, to think about how to decarbonize, how to increase their productivity and think about uh, how much carbon emissions uh, they produce from now and to also 
begin thinking about how can we uh, have green products, green UAE products, that becomes a, a competitive advantage for UAE industry as they export. And finally, let's talk about the cutting edge advanced technologies, fourth industrial revolution technologies. What is the ministry doing to promote that here in the Emirates? And what examples can you give me? So productivity and sustainability are interlinked. Uh, we're uh, incentivizing manufacturers to adopt uh, advanced technology so that they become more productive, so that they become more efficient, which will also uh, lead to uh, lower carbon emissions and making them more sustainable in general. We've come up with uh, a number of initiatives. One of them is an advanced technology index, which we will announce uh, this week. And there are other uh, financing incentives linked to the adoption of advanced technology. So if manufacturers uh, adopt advanced technology more, uh, they'll get access to better financing, they'll get access to lower costs of, of doing business. Uh, and all of this is going to be announced. Soon. That's the voice of His Excellency Abdullah Al-Shamzi, Assistant Undersecretary for Industry Growth at the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology, speaking to me yesterday at the World Future Energy Summit. I think I've got it. Go on. I don't think we can monetize it, but I've got an idea. Oh, this is cashing in on COP. Cashing in on COP. I don't think I can monetize it. I might be able to monetize it. Maybe I can. Um, we've all been to Hollywood's Walk of Fame, yeah? Mm. Chinese theatre, Los Angeles, where people put their hands and they get a star and, and now they're putting their hands down and their handprints. Yeah. I give you the COP28 Carbon Footprint Walk of Fame. <laughs> oh, I like it. In in concrete, uh, one of the Every world's most carbon needs intensive to make a pledge materials. And give their footprints. And it gets set there in stone up at uh, Expo 2020. And it is the COP28 carbon footprint. And they pay Tom Urk at $10,000. No, then we just set up a little stand and take photos of people, you know, posing over them. Charge them $10 a photo yeah. or something like that. Do you want the mug? Do you want the <laughs> mouse pad? <laughs> You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.